Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work through the Word Diet together. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Today we're in the book of Joshua, the book that awakened me to the power and applicability of the Old Testament, in particular the fruit and the fight of Canaan, and it led to my book on Joshua, Inheriting Our Promised Land. And so these episodes are, in essence, an extended audio version of that book. Today we're starting into Joshua 7 after spending two segments on Joshua 6 and the Battle of Jericho, and then four segments, an entire podcast on the difficulties for modern ears that the battles of Jericho and the other battles present. Now the previous chapter ends with Israel's glorious God-given victory over Jericho, the most daunting single challenge in their conquest of the Promised Land. All God had asked of them was their trust, some morning walks, and then to devote the people and the loot to him. What should be the beginning of a string of victories in Canaan takes an ominous turn in the beginning of this chapter as we read, but the Lord's anger burned against Israel in verse 1 of chapter 7. The cause, Achan's sin, taking some of the spoils of the battle, despite God's explicit commands and warnings about devotion, chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, common sense. It's not smart to take God's stuff. The eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. As God had promised, Achan's sin did not stand alone. It affected all of Israel. Also in verse one, we see that Achan is identified as the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. And this detailed foreshadowing introduction to Achan in the midst of unity and victory from the previous chapter is certainly an ominous start. Lissa Beale says, identified with four generations, it is the longest identification in all of Joshua and sets the offender firmly within widening social context of family, clan, and tribe. In the book of Genesis, we saw the importance of getting family right. If you can't get family right, then you're not going to get the nation right. And here we're going to see a focus on the individual, the family, and the corporate implications of one man's sin and a household that enables him. Okay, let's read verses 2 through 5 as the narrative transitions. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So the next battle for Israel was at the head of the ascent through the mountains, the fortress at Ai. Joshua follows the same strategy in sending spies to scout out Ai, but these spies didn't do such a good job. They vastly underestimated Ai's strength. 
They recommend a fighting force of 2,000 to 3,000 men, implying that they thought there were fewer than 2,000 enemy soldiers. But we find out later that there were about 6,000 men in verse 25 of chapter 8. And when God counsels them later, he tells them to use their whole army in chapter 8, verse 1. And they overestimated their own strength, absent God's presence. This stemmed from some combination of pride and taking God for granted, assuming he would unconditionally be with them each time. But in fact, there is no mention of prayer or dependence on God before this battle. In a word, they were careless in failing to prepare adequately in God's eyes. Compare this to all of the preparation for the battle at Jericho. That was five chapters just to get to chapter 6. The results were devastating physically with 36 men lost and psychologically as their hearts melted in fear. The irony here, of course, is that God wanted the Canaanites' hearts to melt, but because the Israelites' disobedience outside of God's will and presence, they would be unable to capture another inch of the promised land. Within a few hours, they go from being overconfident without God to being underconfident without going back to God. There are a number of important lessons here. First, it turns out that seemingly small obstacles often cause us more trouble than seemingly great problems. And the reason is the same as what sacked Israel here. In approaching an apparently easier battle, they depended on their own strength and failed to obey God's commands after their previous battle. Likewise, if we fail to obey God, we cannot expect his presence or spiritual victory. Depending on our own strength will result in suboptimal outcomes or even defeat. Second, we are often in the most danger following a material or spiritual high. For Israel, defeat was the last thing on their mind entering this battle. But in fact, we are never more vulnerable than after a great victory. The life of Elijah provides a superb illustration of this principle. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah defeats, so to speak, the 450 prophets of Baal. But soon after, Jezebel threatens his life and Elijah runs for the hills. Beyond that, he despairs of his very life. He's so confounded that he runs for his life and then asks God to kill him. Likewise, we always need to be on our guard spiritually, but especially after we have had spiritual or material success. Third, one man's sin can profoundly affect many people. For Achan's sin, it was the devastation of 36 families, defeat in battle, and a severe blow to the community's morale. For Adam, original sin meant separation between us and God, between us and others, and so much more. So too for us, sin can easily have large ripple effects on our character and on other people. Within the church, one bad apple can cause a lot of damage. That is why Christ, and Paul in particular, see 1 Corinthians 5, were so adamant about confronting sin among believers. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. We often get this backwards, spending the most time on sin in the world and then sin in the church and finally sin in ourselves when it should be exactly the opposite. Take care of your own business first, deal with those in the church, and maybe spend time on the world, especially if they're doing injustice to others. In a word, sin in the camp causes tremendous damage, and we've got to deal with that as a church. Sin within the body is often more damaging than the attacks from the outside, to which we pay far more attention. Certainly one treacherous Israelite was far more dangerous to Israel than all the Canaanites combined. All right, let's move on to verses 6 through 9. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? 
If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So the hope we have for Israel entering this chapter disintegrates very quickly. Despite their early success, despite Joshua's fame, wisdom, and courage, it was all for naught without God. But Joshua knew that, instead of sending more men or recasting his military strategy immediately after the battle, Joshua and the leaders hit the dust before the ark until that evening. Joshua recognized God's absence in this battle and knew that progress and victory were impossible without him. From God's promises, he inferred that something was amiss in their relationship with God. Either he or Israel had stumbled in some way. This passage is the closest we will come to seeing any flaws in Joshua's character. His initial question and statement are a little too close to the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness. In fact, he sounds a lot like the wilderness generation with their accusatory wise and their preference for other lands. Instead of asking, how have we sinned? And by omission, we also would say that he gives a much less sophisticated case for forgiveness than we saw from Moses. Matthew Henry excuses Joshua here. He says even good men, when things go bad, are apt to fear the worst. But Joshua seems to blame God a little instead of questioning where the blame belongs. Unfortunately, this assumes something evil about God's character or something incompetent about his sovereignty, questioning the way God runs the universe. Joshua's second question expresses a concern about what he should do, reflecting some combination of concern for communicating God's word and worrying about his own reputation and leadership status. Joshua's third question voices a concern for God's name. Likewise, we are to defend God's reputation directly and in not violating the third commandment by providing bad advertising for God and misusing his name. Whatever sin Joshua commits here, they are relatively mild. Unlike Israel, Joshua only struggles this one time, whereas the people were repeatedly stumbling into grumbling. In any case, it is always amazing to note that God allows this sort of questioning from his servants. Finally, note that Joshua's three questions, read in order, appear to show conviction within his prayer and a renewed divine perspective, evidence that prayer is more about changing our hearts than God's. All right, let's move on to verses 10 through 12. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So, after what reads like a fairly lengthy period of mourning during the day by Joshua and the elders, and then in the evening, the intercession by Joshua in verses 7 through 9, here we get the immediate and terse reply from God in verses 10 through 12. To me, it reads as if God is waiting for Joshua to speak to start the action. The mourning was fine, but intercession and talking with God seems to be what God wants. He seems to go after Joshua in verse 10, and then after Israel in verses 11 and 12. With respect to Joshua, Francis Schaeffer notes that God will respond in a hard way when those who have ample reason to know the answer forget it. Joshua should have known better than what he did here. 
should have started sooner. The intercession is what God is after. That said, the catalyst here is sin in the camp. McConville says the sharpness in Yahweh's tone corresponds to this profound change in Israel's condition. The story of God's protecting, leading presence, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, is now at best on hold and in danger of going into reverse. So God responds to Joshua by telling him to stand up. There's nothing else to be said or prayed. Joshua knew what to do or would shortly, and it was time to take action. Note also that God did not answer any of his questions directly, as he did in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Likewise, when our questions are so far off, God may decide to answer his own questions instead. In a word, God pronounces the sin, the consequences of that sin, and the solution in verses 13 through 15. He leaves the sinners unnamed, but promises to identify them the next day. From chapter 7, verse 1, we know as the readers that Achan is the culprit, but the use of the plural here means that God holds all of Israel accountable and or that others were complicit in Achan's sin. For us as well, our sin has eternal consequences. Only the blood of Jesus can atone for our sin and deal with God's wrath. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Joshua is told to stand up, but ironically, the consequence of Achan's sin is that Israel was unable to stand up against its enemies. Likewise, if we are disobedient, we will be unable to stand up to our enemies, sin nature internally and Satan in the world externally. There are many reasons why God doesn't come through for us, so to speak. From this passage, we see three possibilities. We aren't even close to asking the right things, we're tolerating evil in our camp, or we're being disobedient. The extent of the sin identified by God is also interesting. Look at the verbs, sinned, violated the covenant, taken some of God's things, stolen, lied, and put the stolen goods with their own things. The word translated by the NIV as violate is literally cross the covenant. And it's the same word as in crossing the Jordan River in chapters 3 and 4. In other words, it's, it's as if they've crossed back to the wilderness here. Often we try to reduce the evil inherent in our sin, but here God expands it. In God's mind, it's not just the one action that is sinful, but all the actions and thoughts connected with it, as well as the motives and attitudes implied by the actions. This also points to our need to acknowledge specific sins and to think through the byproducts and root causes of those sins. Compounding the sin, Achan did all this as if God wouldn't notice, and as if those things were not holy. As Achan stole God's stuff, he surely looked left and right in his fear of men, but he just as surely forgot to look up in a more important fear of God. Likewise, one day God will judge even those things we somehow think we've hidden. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered Joshua 7, verses 1 through 12. In verses 10 through 12, God had identified the sin to Joshua. Now in verses 13 through 15, He deals with the prescription for making things right going forward. There, God speaks as the passage continues. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan, 
The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family, and the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So they had been consecrated back in chapter 3, verse 5, as part of the preparation for the battle of Jericho. But here there's a need for reconsecration after they had been made unclean. So Joshua tells Joshua to reconsecrate or rededicate or make holy again the people. The next morning there would be a roll call and God would identify the sinner's tribe, then clan, then family, then individuals. Probably by using lots. It's like drawing straws. We read about this in Proverbs 16.33. It's interesting that God schedules this for the next day. It was already evening, chapter 7, verse 6, and it had been a long day. But given God's desire for us to deal with sin as quickly as possible, I suspect that there's more to it than just getting a good night's sleep beforehand. It gave Joshua time to organize the people for the next morning's activity. The delay certainly made it more dramatic. In the midst of their reconsecration, this would have given them time to reflect on the seriousness of sin and the wrath of God, and it allows a picture of a fresh start beginning anew in the morning. I think it is also quite possible that God wanted Achan to have a bad night of sleep and to respond by publicly confessing and repenting of his sin. David wrote, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Even if he had repented and confessed, God might have punished him anyway. Touching God's stuff meant capital punishment in other contexts. Exodus 19, verses 12 and 13 promises death for touching the ark, fulfilled by Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, even when he was just trying to make sure it did not fall to the ground. Likewise, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead when they claimed to have devoted money from the sale of a property to God, but in fact were holding on to a portion of the money in Acts 5. And even if God had forgiven him and extended mercy to him on earth, Achan still would have had to deal with the earthly consequences of his sin. Perhaps death would have been more merciful than having to repeatedly see the families of the 36 men who had died. So too with us, the law of sowing and reaping may not be overcome by the law of God's mercy. Still, the best move forward is repentance and aiming for restoration and reconciliation with the Lord and with others. All right, let's move on to verses 16 through 21. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites were chosen. And he had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. The phrase early the next morning may imply a sleepless night, or at least Joshua's great zeal to see Israel return to divine favor and his passion for God's justice to be delivered and the injustice to be dealt with. Perhaps he was further upset that the person didn't come forward during the night. Interestingly, the selection process begins with Judah, the most honored and illustrious tribe in Israel's history, and the tribe with the most land in Canaan, Genesis 49, 8-10. 
This serves as a picture of both pride and greed. When God fingers Achan, Joshua's comments are firm but compassionate and gentle, a nice combination of hating the sin but loving the sinner, especially in light of his presumed zeal and despite all the trouble Achan had caused. Joshua here recognizes that this is about God's judgment, not his own. It was nothing personal. Perhaps Joshua felt some responsibility for Achan's sin or felt some empathy for him, thinking there but for the grace of God go I. Achan finally comes clean and provides a direct and complete account of all the details with no excuses. But is this true or false repentance? This is always the practical problem of confessing after one is caught. Such after-the-fact confessions are observationally equivalent with merely being sorry that one was caught. Here, Achan shows no apparent remorse or sorrow and perhaps even asks for pity and empathy. As God had done, Achan provides a catalog of his sin, but while God lists the actions, Achan focuses on the spiritual progression of his sin. He saw, coveted, took, hid, and denied. This is reminiscent of Eve, who saw, desired, took, and then ate before blaming the serpent for her sin in Genesis 3. David follows a similar progression in his adultery with Bathsheba. He saw her, asked for information about her, sent for her, committed adultery with her, and then murdered her husband to cover his tracks in 2 Samuel 11. James 1, 14 and 15 identifies this same pattern. Each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's interesting that for Achan, the sin starts with coveting in his heart, but then manifests as the fruit of taking, which is mentioned three times in this passage and five times in chapter 7 overall. Notice also that when he hides the items, he is in direct comparison and contrast to Rahab, who had righteously hidden the spies. Other lessons abound here. First, sin does not accurately balance out the earthly and heavenly costs. Achan comes away with about five pounds of silver and a little over a pound of gold. Was it worth all this? What good will it be for a man if he gains six pounds of precious metal yet forfeits his soul? Might be a good paraphrase of Jesus' words. Second, sin is never as good as it seems initially. It has often been said that we never find in sin what we enter sin to find. By definition, sin is not in our best interest, so even if there are short-term benefits, they will be outweighed by long-term earthly or heavenly costs. And here, Achan doesn't even get to enjoy the fruit of his crime. He has to hide it in the ground. Third, note that Achan seems almost relieved that the episode is over. The burden of trying to cover up sin can be grueling. We've all experienced this. For especially nasty descriptions of this phenomenon in classical literature, read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment or Edgar Allan Poe's short story, A Telltale Heart. Shakespeare said, to be alone with my conscience is hell enough for me. And that's certainly the case when our consciences are not clear. Why did Aiken do it? Perhaps he thought God was kidding or powerless to enforce the command. Perhaps he did not trust that God wanted the best for him and so rebelled. Perhaps he rationalized that his sin wasn't that big, especially relative to the Canaanites' sin. But most likely, he was so entranced with the short-term benefit that he was unable to see the costs, and once he had committed the sin, he was too stubborn and prideful to repent and confess. When does this slippery slope begin? When does desire clearly become sin? From the Sermon on the Mount and Christ's teachings on murder versus anger and adultery versus lust— We can define sin as when I think about doing the evil to the extent that I would do it if I wouldn't get caught. 
At another level, the question doesn't matter. The clear lesson is to move back from a sin, whatever your present relationship to it. Lord, help us to do better benefit-cost calculus as we make our decisions and avoid sin. And Lord, wherever we're at with our sin, help us to walk away from it and turn back to you. In Jesus' name and the power of the Spirit, amen. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. We're in Joshua 7 right now. We've gotten quite a bit into the narrative, reaching verse 21. We have a few more things to say about that. So far, we had the defeat at the Battle of Ai, the initial defeat. Then we had Joshua going to the Lord for lengthy mourning in verse 6. Intercession by Joshua in verses 7 through 9. That leads to an immediate and terse reply from God in verses 10 through 12. And then the prescription for dealing with the sin in verses 13 through 15. That plays out in verses 16 through 21 as Achan is revealed, confronted, and he does a pretty good confession, although we would have hoped for a lot more and a lot sooner. In particular, you're struck by the depth of the sin and the details of the way the sin unfolds and the slippery slope aspects of it. And the lessons here are very powerful for us because the causes of our sin are very similar. First, like Achan, we underestimate God's holiness. We fail to appreciate how seriously God takes sin and the horror and hideousness of our acts. We reduce sin to the narrow category of relatively heinous sins of commission. Instead, sin is properly defined as a failure to do the right things and say the right words in the right timing with the right motives and from the proper strength, which Romans 14.23, Paul identifies as faith. The good news is that the extent of our sin is matched by the depth of God's grace, and a fuller understanding of sin and judgment will make us even more thankful for the mercy and grace he has extended to us. Second, we disregard or downplay the certainty of God's word. Again, this was a key problem in the Genesis 3 passage with the Garden of Eden and original sin, as Eve allowed Satan to inject doubt into what God had commanded Meanwhile, Galatians 6, 7 tells us not to be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We will bear the consequences if we dismiss his word. I think related to this, it's not even clear that Achan quite understands what the problem is. Notice that in verse 21, he refers to it as plunder. It's not plunder. It's devoted to God. Just misunderstanding the nature of what God has said and how God sees reality. Achan's really far off from that. Lissa Beale says, Achan reveals he thinks of them as his right. He not only has disregarded the direct command of God, but has not yet fully grasped the unique holiness of the Jericho battle. Third, and I think this is the most memorable aspect of the sin to me, we often rebel against God's timing. The Israelites were commanded not to take anything from Jericho. Does God have a vendetta against the beautiful things he created? Of course not. There was nothing inherently wrong with the things that Achan took per se, except that they belong to God. Perhaps the largest irony of this story is that the Israelites would soon be given permission to take some of the plunder from Ai in chapter 8, verse 2. If Achan had waited only a few days, what he wanted so badly would have been his legitimately, and he could have fully enjoyed it. Likewise for us, God equips us with many legitimate desires, for example, sex, but his word dictates that those desires be exercised only in certain contexts, For example, sex only within the covenant of marriage. Our failure to do so risks earthly consequences, assures some loss of heavenly reward, and portrays our distrust in a God who always wants the best for us. Let's move on to verses 22 through 26. 
So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. So Achan is convicted by the lot, his own confession, and then the search of his tent. After the confession, the people ran to the tent, a picture of their readiness to obey and their passion in wanting to deal with sin and get rid of the accursed things. The execution itself is sobering. They take Achan outside the camp so as not to defile the camp by his death. Again, the people are directly involved in Achan's sin. Hear the punishment of it. In putting Achan to death, Israel provides a picture of how we are to deal with sin in our own lives. Romans 8.13 says that by the Spirit we are to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Colossians 3.5 says that we are to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Interestingly, Achan's children are punished as well. As accomplices, they were just as guilty in God's court. This is covered throughout the law. The children may not have spurred him to do the deed, but they were at least aware of it and failed to confront him appropriately. In fact, the phrase in the tent is used three times in verses 22 and 23, which also indicates the complicity of the household. His wife is not included in the list of those executed. She may have been dead already, which may speak to the accountability he needed, but she was no longer providing for him. And if she was alive, she had not been involved in the sin, but may have had to participate in or even lead the stoning, according to Deuteronomy 13. Now, complicity does not explain the death of the livestock and the destruction of the possessions in verse 24. Instead, this is a matter of ritual uncleanness or impurity. And practically, how would you divide it? No one's going to want his stuff. The most appropriate thing is for it to be destroyed which is what was supposed to happen with the plunder from the battle at Jericho. Achan had been trouble for Israel, and so they rained down trouble on him. It's interesting, this is the same language that's used in 1 Samuel 14, 29 of Jonathan for his father, King Saul, and also the language of the back and forth between the prophet Elijah and King Ahab in 1 Kings 18, verses 17 and 18. The sentence plays out as is described in Deuteronomy 13, verses 12 through 18. They also named the place after him, creating another memorial, this one to commemorate the devastating consequences of sin and disobeying God. These memorializing rocks echo the monument at the Jordan where they had crossed, and it's appropriate because Achan had crossed the covenant. Interestingly, Achan ends up being the opposite of Rahab. She was a Canaanite who abandoned the things of Canaan, turned to God, and was saved. Achan was an Israelite who abandoned the things of God, turned to the things of Canaan, and was executed. Rahab's family joins her in remarkable faith and is saved. Achan's family joins him in grievous sin and dies. The closing beauty of this chapter is that God was turned from his fierce anger their joy would come in the morning, the next morning, when they renewed their conquest of the promised land, and we'll see that in chapter 8. McConville notes that the consonants in Achan's name are the same as Canaan's, 
and observes that he stands for a Canaanite threat within the covenant community that might become just like Canaan. That's the internal threat. They're always worried about the externals, but the internals are perhaps more devastating. That's what we see in Joshua 7, and that's what we know from our own lives in Christ as well. In terms of this comparison to Achan and Rahab, Beal notes that she spoke of God's miracles, his power to give the land and his position as God in heaven above and on the earth below. Achan offers no words of praise or acknowledgement of God's power and appears less a true Israelite than Rahab. In fact, her expression of faith in chapter 2 is equivalent to what we saw from Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 13 and 14, and it's the second largest in the book of Joshua, aside from Joshua's own testimony that closes out the book in chapter 24. So the comparison between Achan and Rahab is tremendous. As we talked about after chapter 6 in our last episode, it's not about ethnicity, it's about those who have the faith and the obedience to follow God. Rahab had it, Achan did not. By analogy, all of this speaks to the need for us to deal with sin in our own lives and within the body of the church. I've already made reference to most of these things, but it bears repeating, and it's good to have them all in one place. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, very clear parallels to what's happening here, and both of them are at the beginning of the formation of these communities. Joshua with the people getting established in Canaan, and in Acts 5, the early church getting established. You also have 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34, and the abuse of the Lord's Supper, which was resulting in sleep, which is a metaphor for death, in verse 30. Jesus talks about this, Matthew 18, verses 15-17. through 17, If your brother sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I like how Jesus ends that with the tongue-in-cheek reference to pagans and tax collectors. The irony is that the Jews would tend to treat pagans and tax collectors poorly, but in the ministry of Jesus, they're elevated. He's having some fun with that here, saying, no, that's the people that you're going to treat like you all usually treat the pagans and the tax collectors. The church has to be very strong in what's often called church discipline, and Jesus lays out the process for that, or at least the principles of that process in Matthew 18. We also have the expulsion of hardcore, unrepentant, libertine sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 5. That whole passage is amazing, but the Corinthians were confused, and so Paul writes at the end of that chapter on that confusion. He says in verses 9 through 13, I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. And there he's quoting Deuteronomy 13, 17, 19, 21, 22, and 24, where it comes up over and over again. 
the standard between the early church and what the Israelites are supposed to do are roughly equivalent. And it's not just libertine behavior. Maybe it's easy for the conservatives to focus on that, but Paul goes off on the legalists as well and the false teachers in Galatians 5, 1 through 12. I'm not going to read any of that passage, but Paul is just as hard on those. And early in Galatians, of course, he says they may be eternally condemned with their false gospel. So we have to be very careful with doctrine and practice. Let's close with two other references to Achan. His name comes up again in Joshua 22 as the Transjordan tribes are going back home. And there's a problem that we'll cover at great length. I love that chapter. But one of the things the Western tribes do as they're talking with the East is they reference Achan as a reason that they're concerned about the sin or the potential sin of the Eastern tribes. And here's what they say in chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. And so the Western tribes use Achan as an example of why the sin is so serious and why they're so concerned with what the Eastern tribes have done by constructing this altar. Quite reasonably, they're worried about a sequel to the Aiken episode, and that's part of their diligence in dealing with the potential threat that the Eastern tribes' altar has presented. But the last reference to Aiken is probably the most stunning. It shows up in Hosea 2, and if you don't know that story, I commend it to your reading as soon as possible. Beautiful, powerful, maybe no stronger exhibition of the grace of God through the ministry of Hosea. And chapter 2 opens with 13 verses that the anger of God is flashing at the disobedience and the idolatry of his people. Verse 13 wraps up that long passage with, I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. So painful, poignant, powerful as God expresses his disappointment at Israel chasing after other gods. And then verse 14, one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible, starts with therefore, and you're expecting more anger, wrath, punishment. Instead, it's therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. And maybe the most beautiful verse in that passage, verse 20, I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. So God, through the prophet Hosea, uses Achan's trouble, Achan's sin, the valley of Achor, as a picture of what reconciliation, repentance, love, and grace ultimately look like. What a beautiful passage and what a beautiful ending to this tragic chapter in Joshua. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we finished up Joshua 7. That takes us to Joshua 8. We'll start with verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, 
except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So chapter 7 ended with the assurance that the Lord turned from his fierce anger after the Israelites had dealt properly with sin in their camp. But entering chapter 8, how would Joshua and the people feel after the traumatic loss in battle, the discovery of Achan's sin, and the community stoning of Achan and his family? I suspect they were much humbled and probably a little jumpy. I also expect that some of them were still discouraged, despite God's faithfulness and his promises that there was no reason for discouragement. In fact, the language here in verse 1 is the very same that was given to Joshua back in chapter 1, verse 9, that be strong and courageous included an encouragement not to be discouraged. But it's difficult to do that when you've just faced defeat and trouble. How does God respond to their apparent uncertainty? He anticipates it and recognizes it even when unspoken. He encourages them with familiar and reassuring words, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, and a favorable historical reference to Jericho. He explicitly restores the promise of his presence and his provision and their victory. He applies this promise specifically to an area of recent struggle and provides a general plan for dealing with the enemy and beyond mercy, failing to punish them further and renewed relationship as opposed to an indefinite probation, he amazingly extends grace, giving them what they don't deserve, granting them the eventual fruits of their impending battle with and victory over Ai. Not only victory, but this time they do get to keep the plunder. It's a great picture of grace. In a word, God patiently seeks to replace despair with hope, to build them up in their understanding of both his wrath towards sin and his complete mercy and grace following repentance to get them back on the path of dependence on him and victory in him. But isn't it the same with us? In our justification, we accept the unmerited favor of God's grace, yet some struggle mightily with the sense that they are not fully accepted by God or that their past has not been fully erased in God's eyes. In our sanctification, we often believe that our stumbles result in some kind of divine grudge or heavenly kingdom probation like we often do when people have wronged us. But think about the words we use to describe the Christian life, path, journey, walk, sanctification. In 1 Timothy 4.15, Paul tells Timothy to be diligent in matters of sanctification and discipleship so that everyone may see your progress. Just like a parent or teacher, God cares far less about where we've been than where we're going. God wants us to focus on the opportunities of the present and the hope of eternity, while Satan wants us to focus on the stumbles of the past and the potential problems of the future. Our God is the God of second chances and do-overs. One look at the lives of biblical characters illustrates that point nicely, from God with Jonah to Jesus with Peter to Paul with Mark. Genuine repentance is the key to renewed vitality in our relationship with God. In 1 John 1, 6 and 9, we're told that if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Joel 2, 13 and 14 is even more explicit. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. And remember how this chapter began. Then the Lord said to Joshua, 
follows Israel's dealing with Achan's sin. That word then is so useful, the cause and effect from chapter 7's ending to chapter 8's beginning. But this is not to be confused with false repentance, as Achan seemed to show, a regret that is more concerned about the consequences of the sin rather than the sin itself. When we have put away known sin, God responds immediately by providing mercy, grace, and often insight into his will. Instead, we underestimate the strength of his wrath as well as how quickly he allows us to return to a full relationship post-repentance. This is modeled most famously by the parable of the prodigal son, where the father waits, anticipates, and hopes for the son's return from profligacy, and then restores him immediately to all the privileges of being his son. Let's move on to verses 3 through 8. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance in the city, and when the men come out against us as they did before, we will flee before them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say... They are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. As noted before, the spy's earlier estimate of what would be necessary to win Ai was much lower than what God would now command. They had recommended a few thousand troops in chapter 7, verse 3, while God instructs them to use the whole army twice, actually, in verses 1 and 3. For the ambush alone, Joshua uses 30,000 of his best fighting men in verse 3. We learn later that Ai mustered about 6,000 men in chapter 8, verse 25. This is a graphic picture of both our underestimation of sin and our enemies, the devil, the world, and our sin nature, and the ineptness of human effort outside of God's will and empowerment. The strategy itself is also noteworthy. Unlike Jericho's seemingly silly plan, this is standard shrewd military strategy. Ambush, note that God commands them to use deceit. That's also interesting in light of what Rahab did in Joshua 2. And surround the enemy using superior numbers. There are a number of other interesting observations. First, God's hand was not equally evident in his two battle plans, but his presence was equally necessary for their success. Despite their overwhelming military presence, it was still not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, Zechariah 4.6. Although the Israelites were asked to participate to a far greater extent in this battle, God's provision was still essential. All true victory is a gift from God. As the battles of our promised land will have different combinations of God's provision and our participation. In any case, our participation is to be of our highest quality. Second, God works in many different ways. He uses very diverse means to accomplish his work, but all of his ways result in routes of the enemy. Instead, we like to put God in a box. In Matthew eleven sixteen through 19 Jesus notes that people were critical of him for hanging out with gluttons and drunkards, and critical of John the Baptist for neither eating nor drinking. Neither criticism was warranted because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans fourteen seventeen. A pastor in Texas used to joke about two rival groups who had arisen in the time of Christ, the Mudites and the Touchites, those he had healed with mud and those he had healed by touch. But such a debate is as silly as some of the issues that divide individuals and churches today, worship styles, church rituals, cultural norms, and so on. Third, Joshua is given the general plan by God, but gets to fill in the details himself. 
Apparently, all that God mentions is bringing the whole army and the use of an ambush. Joshua is left to develop the specifics of the strategy, allowing Joshua a degree of ownership in planning the battle and developing his leadership skills, creativity, faith, and so on. The lesson for us is that God often allows us freedom within his will to make our own plans. In contrast, sometimes we think God has a specific will that we can discern over decisions as minor as the sandwich I choose for lunch, or that at least implicitly God has no specific or general will for our lives. The truth is, more often than not, somewhere in the middle. Fourth, God can use our past to our advantage and to the benefit of his kingdom. Note that Joshua is able to anticipate that AI will chase their troops as they did before in verses 5 and 6. Likewise, God can turn our past defeats into present and future victories. We're promised that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose in Romans 8.28. AI is first used as a rod of correction for Israel, but then that rod is turned back on Israel's enemies. Lord, we thank you that you can use our past defeats through reconciliation, repentance, and your mercy and grace to gain us victories. We pray that we would rely on your presence, walk in faith and obedience in the days to come. In the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.